This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, as we continue our study through Luke's Gospel. If you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles stacked in the, uh, the shelves there on the side. love for you to grab a copy of God's Word, and you'll be helped today as we go through this text together. But we want you to take that with you, take that home with you, and uh, have a copy of God's Word at home if you don't have a copy there. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 37. Luke chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Let's ask for the Lord's help as we look to His Word this morning. Oh Lord, we need You. This is such a relevant and piercing teaching for us. And so we pray you would clear away the fog now in our eyes of distraction and other things that are on our mind for later this weekend, and then especially, Lord, the spiritual blindness that we just acknowledge is there, that we don't see as clearly as we think we do. And we pray you would fill our hearts and our eyes with the beauty of the gospel the beauty, Lord Jesus, of your work for us, our redemption, our acceptance with the Father, that we might love and live in accordance with that love that you've shown us. Lord, we confess that we fail at this. We can think of a list of ways that we've failed, even maybe this morning. And so we pray for humble hearts, repentant hearts, hearts that are eager to serve you. May we be driven by the gospel of grace, Lord, in all that we do. We pray you would address us, Lord, from your word, by your spirit now. Help us and lead us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In our uh, 
Parenthood 101 class. Uh, There's nothing more humbling than teaching a parenting class as a parent. But in our Parenting 101 class um, at VBS this week, we discuss the importance of aiming at the heart in parenting and not focusing on external behaviors, but addressing the, the heart from which all of our behavior and language and all the things that we see as parents, that all flows out of the heart. We know that from what Jesus teaches us. And as I processed that and thought about that, it's just a reminder to me that we all need that understanding. We all need to be reminded of Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Guard your heart. From your heart flows the springs of life. And in our study of Luke's gospel, we've been thinking about these radical claims and commands from Jesus to love our enemies, to love people that don't deserve it, and for that love to be actually rooted in the mercy of God in the gospel. So be merciful, Jesus says, as your Father is merciful. Do good to those that hate you, pray for them, love them, expecting nothing in return. So this one-way love drives us to the very end of our natural abilities. We realize this is not within us to do this. And yet our inclination is to try, to try harder, to be better at doing these things and to muster it up, make it happen on our own, or at least for a while. But that's not Jesus' aim. We said last week these commands to love are rooted in the heart change that comes through God's grace. Remember that it's kind of rooted in those verses in, in chapter 6, verses 43 and following. That Jesus is going to be teaching there that you'll know a tree by its fruits. He's going to be addressing the heart. And out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we want to keep our mind and attention there. Even as we continue this teaching about love today. Paul Tripp uh, explains and kind of tells us the importance of this reality this way. He says, if a tree produces bad apples year after year, there's something drastically wrong with its system down to its very roots. I won't solve the problem by stapling new apples onto the branches. They also rot because they're not attached to the life-giving root system. And next spring, I will have the same problem again. I will not see a new crop of healthy apples because my solution has not gone to the heart of the problem. If the tree's roots remain unchanged, it will never produce good apples. The point is that in personal ministry, much of what we do to produce growth and change in ourselves and others is a little bit is little more than fruit stapling. It attempts to exchange apples for apples without examining the heart, the root behind the behavior. And so Jesus' commands to love the undeserving test our hearts and push us to the source of a love like that. The source for biblical love is God's radical grace. To sinners in the gospel. And so this morning we're going to see Jesus continue to call us to love like we've been loved. But just like demanding good behavior from our children without addressing the heart, we'll create little Pharisees if we don't root his words in the gospel of grace, we are going to see an impossible list before us and walk away discouraged. And just try to conform outwardly while on the inside Um, Our hearts are far from the heart of God. 
So to, in order to understand this, we need to have clear sight, spiritual sight. Sight that enables us not only to be disciples, but to make disciples. And that's the main thrust of this passage before us. Because of the love that we have been shown in Christ, we can see clearly to love others. That's the main point of this sermon this morning. Because of the love that we have been shown in Christ, we can see clearly in our love for others. And Jesus is going to unpack what seeing clearly looks like in this way. So if you're taking notes, three ways that Jesus tells us what seeing clearly looks like. First, seeing clearly means seeing through the eyes of grace. Seeing through the eyes of grace. And you see that in verses 37 and 38. Secondly, it means keeping our eyes on Jesus, who is our teacher. Keeping our eyes on Jesus. That's verses 39 to 40. And then finally, seeing with humility, verses 41 and 42. Watching out for the plank in your own eye. And so we need to pray, don't we? We need to pray that God would help us see. And I love the way that Paul does this. Paul does this in Ephesians 1. He says, we pray. This is him praying for the church. So you should ask God to do this in your heart. I'm asking him to do it in my heart. Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, we may know what is the hope that which we've been called. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Friends, it implies, if Paul's praying it for the church, that this is not a natural thing, where we wake up and understand the immeasurable riches that we've been shown in Christ. That our hearts know the hope that he's called us to. We understand the riches of his glorious grace. We need God's help to see clearly. So first, you want to do that by seeing through the eyes of grace. Number one. Number one, we need to see through the eyes of grace. Right off the bat, here in verse 37, we need to root the commands of Jesus in the gospel and the wider scope of Scripture. Because we have these words, Judge not, and you will not be judged. This is probably the most famous verse in the world. Right? This is it. The most famous and misused verse in all of Scripture. According to our culture, passing judgment on someone else, a moral judgment on their decisions in life, is the ultimate transgression, the ultimate sin. When you tell someone else that what they're doing is wrong, we much prefer to set our own standards for morality because then we can adjust them as needed. We much prefer to be our own God than to submit to the one true God. So non-Christians will and often do point to this verse to say, if you really want to be like Jesus, if you really want to love me, you won't speak against me or my lifestyle. And of course, today that's gone from not speaking against to affirming my sin and my lifestyle. If you truly love me, you will affirm me in all the decisions I've made, no questions asked. Friends, that is what happens when you rip a verse out of its context. And weaponize it and use it for your own purposes. Notice even in this chapter, Jesus is calling us to judge, to make moral evaluations based on fruit. What sort of fruit do you see in someone's life? Scripture teaches that that Christians are to, in fact, make judgments, moral evaluations on doctrine and behavior. This is what Paul says to the Galatians. He says... 
Even if we, this is Galatians 1.8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. In other words, there is one true gospel, and Paul says if, if I show up and change the gospel, or if an angel comes and says something different, they should be accursed. In other words, you need to morally evaluate your doctrine. We need to do that as a church. We have a statement of faith. We need to listen to the teaching that's, been, that's being taught. We need to think about what's being said. Does it line up with Scripture? We do this all the time. Uh, and also behavior. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, the situation of church discipline, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those who are on the outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So again, just let those who have ears, as Jesus says, hear. We are to hear his words with wisdom, biblical wisdom, Holy Spirit-led wisdom that guides us into all truth. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It guides us into all truth. So Jesus is not saying we should be more tolerant or affirming of sinful behavior. Full stop, but now let's pay attention to what he is saying. Right? Let's not lose the force for the trees. Don't neglect what he is saying. He is speaking about being judgmental. About having a spirit of judgmentalism. So a judgmental person is someone who reaches unjust conclusions about someone else's motives in advance. You've already made up your mind about this person. You've prejudged them before you've known all the facts, before you've known them. You're quick to criticize them. Usually putting things in the worst possible light. You've already arrived at your conclusion, which leads right into what he says next, because you're going to be condemning them. You're going to be condemning them. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. You're pronouncing them guilty. You've elevated yourself to judge and pronounced them guilty and lowered them to a place below yourself and myself. One author pointed out, I thought this was interesting, that oftentimes judgmental people, we sometimes can be judgmental, will identify and judge our own sins in others. We'll quickly see and run to those sins that we know are present in our life and judge those in others. King David is a great example of this, isn't he? After the adultery, his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah, Nathan comes to him and tells him this rich tale, this great tale of a poor man's beloved pet sheep that was stolen and slaughtered by this rich man to feed his guests. And David is horrified. And so what does he do? He pronounces condemnation on this man. 2 Samuel 12, 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David was not seen clearly. He was judging and being judgmental and condemning. And it was at that point that Nathan said, David, you are the man. You are the man. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Those commands are given in the negative. But Jesus also gives us positive commands Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Jesus is teaching his disciples, Christians, followers of Jesus, to forgive. 
to be forgiving people. Right? Can you think of a more powerful way to display the gospel than to forgive someone who has hurt you that doesn't deserve it? A better way to replay the gospel in real time for others to see. This happens in big ways in our lives and it happens in small ways in our lives. W.E. Sangster was a pastor in London and, uh, during the 1940s and 50s and he's, he writes this in his journal. He says, it was Christmas time in my home. One of my guests came a couple days early and saw me sending off the last of my Christmas cards. He was startled to see a certain name and address. Surely you're not sending a greeting card to him. Why not, I asked. But you remember, he began, 18 months ago, and then I remembered the thing the man had publicly said about me. But I remembered also, resolving at that time, with God's help, that I had remembered to forget. And God made me forget. And I posted the card. So forgiveness is where rubber meets the road. Not just in big dramatic ways, but in Christmas card ways. In eye contact ways. In, in, in seeing others and in, in caring for them ways. Interpersonal relationship, dinner table ways. Forgiveness describes the inner heart disposition of the disciple of Jesus. For instance, this doesn't mean that we don't struggle with forgiveness at times. It doesn't mean that we are free from battles of bitterness or even hatred. But nevertheless, we just need to let our eyes see what Jesus says. His followers are to forgive, to work toward it, to walk in it. And not just to forgive, but to give. Verse 38. Give, and it will be given to you. How will it be given to you? Good measure. Press down. Shaken together, running over, put into your lap. It's a picture of a lavish kind of agricultural example. Abundant measure of grain. Imagine a bucket. First it's filled three quarters full. And then it's given a good shake with a rotary motion to make the grain settle down. Then it's filled to the top and another shake. Then it's pressed together strongly with both hands. Finally there's more heaped on top. And it's tapped carefully to press the grains together. And then from time to time, a hole is borne down into the grain and more grain is poured in. This way, the purchaser is guaranteed an absolutely full measure. It cannot hold anymore. It's a picture of abundance. Friends, of course, we know that we don't always receive this kind of abundance one for one in our life, in this life. But friends, oftentimes we do. We do receive great blessing from the Lord when we walk in obedience to the Lord. It shouldn't surprise us. I know many believers that just exemplify generosity in their lives who also regularly experience God's blessing and grace. It's not a hard and fast rule. We need to write down, if I do X, I will get Y. Put my money in the vending machine, I get this out. Of course not. No. But we ought to expect, when we live according to what Jesus calls us to live, how to live, to, to experience his blessing. And then we can absolutely know and expect more than we could ask for or imagine prepared for us in glory. 
more than we could ask for or imagine. But again, he's not calling us to just non-hatred, non-response, non-bitterness, letting go of a grudge, a positive love. Do good. Love your enemies. Live by the golden rule. Gregory Jones writes of a Turkish officer that raided and looted an American home. He killed the aged parents, gave the daughters to the soldiers, and he kept the oldest daughter for himself. And we can just assume all the things that he had in store for that oldest daughter. Sometime later, she escaped and took up a career as a nurse. And as time passed, she found herself nursing in a ward of Turkish officers. You can guess where this is going. One night, the light of the lantern, by the light of the lantern, she sees the face of this same officer. And she, he was so gravely ill that without exceptional care, he would die. And so he received exceptional care from her. In the days past, he recovered. And one day, the doctor is standing by the bed with her and says to him, But for her devotion, you would be dead. And so that's when they made eye contact. He looked at her. And said, we have met before, haven't we? And she said, yes, we have met before. And his question was, why didn't you kill me? And she replied, I am a follower of him who said, love your enemies. Seeing life through the eyes of grace. This is not in us, friends. This is not natural for us. Every bone in our body wants to reject it. I think it's also important when we're looking at these commands that they are to be seen as fruits of a regenerate heart, someone who's been born again, evidence of someone who is saved, not rungs on a ladder to climb in order to be saved. And so believer, judge not, and you will not be judged because Christ has taken your judgment for you. You no longer face a judgment because Christ took your judgment. His righteousness is yours. The judge will say not guilty at your hearing because you are in Christ. Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 Since you have escaped the condemnation that you deserve, you are not going to be condemning others. Since you have been forgiven all of your sins in Christ, past, present, in future, you are going to be a person who is quick to, to, to forgive others as you've been forgiven. As you have been given abundantly, more than you could ever ask or imagine in Christ, you are going to be a giving person. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though He was rich for your sake, He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Believer, you have been made rich in Christ rich in Christ. And if that's the disposition of your heart and you add that to the, to the generosity that he calls us to, that's how things in the world change. Someone who knows the debt that has been paid in Christ and they live their life as a giver, that's what disciples do. The measure that we use to give to others is a window into our own hearts. Verse 38. That's why it corresponds to the way God will judge us. Because it's just a window into our hearts. And so how aware are you and I of God's mercy in our lives? 
It's likely a picture of how merciful we're going to be to others. If we discern a proud and cold and hard heart this morning, we ought to take urgent action. Urgent, urgent action. Because it raises the question, doesn't it? Have we experienced this kind of mercy at all? If you can't fathom forgiveness or giving like this to others, friends, that's a dangerous place to be spiritually. But it's also a hopeful place. If you see your need for Christ, you come to Him in faith, you look to the cross. That's the first thing we see in this passage, that disciples see through the eyes of grace because we've experienced God's grace in Christ. Next, we see clearly as disciples when we are keeping our eyes on Jesus. That's number two. Keeping our eyes on Jesus. That may sound a little quaint, something very common we see a lot in a song or whatever, but just listen to the parable Jesus tells here about the necessity for your sight and where it's directed, both as a disciple and as a teacher. So look at verse 39. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So you don't need a lot of explanation. Just, you can picture a blind man leading a blind man and just pretend they're visiting the Grand Canyon. That makes you nervous immediately. This is not going to end well. This is one of Jesus' kind of nicknames for the Pharisees, isn't it? Blind guides. If a leader can't see, then both he and his followers and teachers will fall into the pit. He calls us to love and lead others to him. But friends, we can't do that if we can't see clearly ourselves. This is that picture of being on an airplane and them telling you to put the oxygen on yourself before you put it on your child. Or you'll be useless to them. So it's both a warning to teachers and disciples. Teachers, we must be on guard, right, for, for spiritual blindness. And I think especially as it relates to a lack of love. We will lead others to places we, we, we will not lead others to places that we are not willing to go ourselves. It's that rule of, of always pull, don't push. Pull people to where you are, where you're going. Don't push them off to places where you're not willing to go yourself. We leaders need to see the Bible as God's perfect, inerrant word. We need to be amazed by the awesomeness of God ourselves. We need to be clear in our own heart on the sinfulness of our sin and our desperate need for God's mercy. We need to see Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and raised as the central reality in all the universe. I don't know if there's anything, is there anything we would be more excited about than that? We need to see how the Spirit works to bring change. We need to be devoted to prayer, to following Jesus ourselves. Friends, not many of you should be teachers. My brothers, for know that we who teach are to be judged with greater strictness. A warning to teachers. Also a warning to disciples. Disciples need to be careful who they're following. Listening to, submitting to, reading, 
And the truth is that Jesus says a disciple won't, won't be above his teacher. And when he's fully trained, he'll be like his teacher. So in Jesus' day, you probably know that, that the way learning happened was this one-on-one relationship of life. Not just mere instruction and go home and think about it, but watch me live. Live like I live. And so choosing a teacher is kind of like choosing a way of life. You don't do that lightly because you're going to end up being like your teacher. So choose carefully who you would follow. And remember who's speaking here especially. Jesus' point is he's calling his disciples to follow him. And to follow teachers who follow him. He's speaking as a teacher to disciples. Talking about their relationship to him. So what's the best way to avoid being spiritually blind and not to perish? Not to fall into hell? Know and trust and follow Jesus. He has infinitely perfect vision. He's the one to emulate. So we're called to follow Jesus by faith and let him lead us through life. He always knows the right way. So we ought to listen to what he says about judgmentalism and consider it ourselves. We ought to follow his example when we're struggling with forgiveness. Because when a disciple is fully trained, he will be like his teacher. To follow Jesus is to become like Jesus. Isn't that our greatest prayer? Parents, if you were to think about a prayer request for your children, isn't this it? That they would be like Jesus? Isn't this what we want for every man and woman and child who comes through these doors? Is to be more like Jesus? Romans 8, 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So seeing clearly means keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus. And this is easier said than done. Even in the world of of Christianity, we can get excited and, and busy about so many other things than Jesus. Keep your eyes on him as your Savior. Admitting to him that you are a sinner and cannot be made right with God apart from him. Trusting in his perfect life lived in your place not trying to earn God's acceptance he did it he earned it and then he laid that life down as an atoning death that means he he purchased salvation for you there was a debt you couldn't pay he paid it for you God poured out all that judgment that you and I deserve on Jesus And then three days later, he victoriously, triumphantly rose from the grave. He won the battle over sin and death. He rose. So that when we turn from our sin and put our faith and trust in him, we ourselves are forgiven and restored to a relationship with God that we could never have on our own. In God's eyes, we are righteous. We are his children. So trust Jesus and then obey him. Not just as Savior, but as your Lord. Follow him. He's your king. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Follow Jesus. Copy his life. Surrender yourself, your will, your plan, continually every day to his plan. 
His will for you. And that includes loving those that don't deserve it. So disciples see clearly by keeping their eyes on Jesus. And that leads to our last point this morning. Seeing clearly means seeing with humility. Friend, I wonder if you were to be honest. We were to pass out a survey this morning to this question. Whose sin are you most aware of this morning? In your marriage, in your family, in the church. Whose sin are you most aware of? What sin is easiest for us to see? Isn't it often the really obvious sins that other people commit that we simply see with clarity? Crystal clear clarity? It's not that we think we don't sin. We know we, we sin. We're, everybody's a sinner. But our sins do often seem smaller, insignificant by comparison. I don't think Jesus is suggesting by this illustration that we're just completely blind in our spiritual sight, but that if we're not careful, we'll think we can see better than we can actually see. And so we should take heed to ourselves as we seek to help other brothers and sisters with their sin, their following Jesus. So look here at verse 41. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. How do you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself don't see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. Friends, if you don't think Jesus has a sense of humor, you're not paying attention. This is hilarious. This is a comic sketch. This is comedic exaggeration to make a serious point. You just have to get the picture of one guy who's super concerned about his friend because he has a speck of sawdust in his eye and he has a pillar that's used to keep buildings, buildings up sticking out of his own eye. Taking that thing all around him wherever he goes trying to help this little speck out of his friend. That's hilarious. That's what he's saying. Haven't we seen this? Have, do you, do you, is this a category for you? The person that always is critical of other people. He has some, also as he's critical, some glaringly wrong habit or attitude in his life, which everyone else can see. But strangely enough, not only can he apparently not see it himself, but he's the very one who is constantly pointing out other people's minor faults and failings. And the word for that, Jesus says, is hypocrisy. You hypocrite, Jesus says. And so, friends, we should not, any of us, ignore this warning from Jesus. And I, and I think especially the person who is preaching about this warning from Jesus. We should assume that we tend to minimize our own sins in comparison to other, other people. As Phil Riken says, when we examine our hearts, we always tend to remember that our, we need to remember that our depravity is something like the rearview mirror in a car. Objects are larger than they may appear. Pride and greed are still lurking there. And they are likely bigger than we think they are. So we can easily justify our periodic giving into pornography. It's just a few times a week. Or our, our gossip. It's just something that I feel others need to know. Our gluttony. Nobody's perfect. Our anger. Yeah, I know I yelled, but at least I didn't do what I really wanted to do. 
As a preacher, I really appreciate Paul's words to Timothy. 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Especially you, preacher, as you are confronting others in your preaching and teaching, watch your life. Don't be pointing out specks in others when you have a telephone pole in your own eye. By the way, Jesus is not saying that we shouldn't care about the sins in the lives of others that we love. He's not saying, mind your own business. That's worldly, friends. That's not from Scripture. He tells us in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Jesus isn't also saying that you need to be perfectly sanctified in order to care for others in your life. Because no one would be able to do this. He is saying, be humble. He's saying that someone who has been made merciful and patient by the grace of God is then well positioned to help someone else with their sin. A person who sees clearly on their own, in their own journey in following Jesus, knowing their own sin well, has a particular gentleness and humility about them. So they are confessors, not just confronters. Confessors, not just confronters. They're not just snipers. They're not just sin sniffers. Friends, don't you know the difference between someone who cares about you and they come to you with a a difficult conversation and someone who doesn't, who's trying to one-up you? We all know the difference. Paul, I think, sums up our challenge and our calling well in Galatians 6.1. This is really helpful. Galatians 6.1 and following, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And that's so helpful. You who are spiritual. I don't think that means the elite, the A-team at University Park Baptist Church. It means those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Christians. Those who believe and love the gospel. That's you. When someone's caught in transgression, you, Christian, restore him. Restore him. Don't just go decapitate him. Restore him with a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness. While you're keeping watch on your own heart. Because you know that you are a sinner, and you might be tempted to the very same thing. Don't think that you're something when you're nothing, or you deceive yourself. It's only when our hearts have been broken by our own sin that we'll have this humble grace that we need to lead other sinners to repentance. Paul Miller refers to this process as beam research, B-E-A-M, beam research. He says, you need to do beam research in your own eye. You need to slow down, apply the golden rule, be reflective before you speak. Think about your heart, your motivation, your behavior. The golden rule slows you down. That self-reflection frames your honesty. Jesus is the most honest person who's ever lived on the planet. We ought to model the way that he is honest. And we ought to obey the golden rule. We ought to be reflective in the way that we approach others. And minister to others. That's what he's calling us to. Loving, self-reflecting, humble care 
for others, seeing with humility. So again, the main idea is this. Because of the love that we've been shown in Christ, we can see clearly in our love for others. And I think really the goal there is just to see others and ourselves the way Jesus does. Through the eyes of grace. To keep our eyes on Jesus in our discipleship. And to humbly love and care for our brothers. Not out of a sense of self-righteousness. Because we know we're not neutral truth-tellers. One sinner speaking to, to another sinner. It's always that way. One sinner speaking to another sinner. We're sinners who have found grace and want to offer that grace to others. So I just want to encourage you to, to pray um, for God to help you with this, to help me with this, to help us as a church with this. A great passage of Scripture to pray is Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God. And know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. God knows us. When he searches our hearts, he sees all of our hearts, doesn't he? All of our thoughts, all of our actions, all of our grievous ways. What an opportunity to be judgmental. When you know all the facts. Judgmentalism by definition, is judging without knowing all the facts. God knows all the facts. It would be right for him to judge us guilty, but that's not the way the gospel goes. Knowing all the facts, the full extent of our sin, God reaches out in mercy, granting forgiveness through Christ and his death on the cross, offering eternal life through the power of his resurrection. So, friends, the grace that that we give has to flow from the grace that we've received and still need. It's that grace, the psalmist says, that will lead us in the way everlasting. May that grace fill our hearts this morning. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, that is our prayer. You would search us and know us. And, Lord, we know that is a humbling thing to ask because... We're sinners. But our hope is not in our self-reform, but in Jesus Christ. And so we pray that we would be so transformed by the grace we have seen in Christ that our lives would be so drastically different than the world. That there would be questions all over us about where does this come from? How do you do this? And may we just be pointers to Jesus, pointers to the gospel. Lord, we pray that if there are specific people now in our minds, in our hearts, that we need to forgive, that you would give us grace to do it. If there's specific ways that we have been judgmental, that we would repent and make things right. Specific ways that we've been greedy, that we would, from the the, the, the storehouses of grace that we've been shown, Lord, repent and be gracious. Lord, may we keep our eyes on you. We love you and thank you for your grace to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.